Well, we're going to continue on in a sermon series that we've titled Rebuilding Church. I don't know how many of you are on social media. Um, It's a really wonderful place that isn't toxic at all. You have a lot of friendly engagements with the world through these things. But several months ago, I, I started what is known as TikTok. Do you guys know what TikTok is? It's kind of like Instagram, but like with videos, and it's way more addicting, right? And I've posted two videos since. You could find me on the TikTok and follow me on it if you want. The first video that I posted was me using this filter that made me look bald um, because I wanted to know what I look like if I were Marshall. No, I'm just kidding. I, I actually am concerned because my maternal grandfather is bald, and they say that's going to pass through your mom's dad. And so I was curious to know what I look like when I were bald, right? So I took this picture, and that, you know, it's not as bad as you would think, Paige. It's okay. <laughs> but I posted a second video. It was uh, the first part of a one-part series that I titled, Stuff Christians Should Know. And I wanted to explain some things on TikTok, and I only did it once, so it's not really explaining, but that I think church folk are so familiar with and yet unfamiliar with. That would be helpful for us to understand these things that we participate in as Christians and as church people. And the first question that I wanted to answer in this series on TikTok is, what is a sermon? What is a sermon? I consider to have some of you share with the people around you this morning what you think a sermon is. And so let's do that. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Like, I, I was just like imagining just anxiety levels just like skyrocketing through the roof as you're thinking about, I got to say something. It better be the right answer. What if the pastor says something different from what I respond? And so I'm not going to do that. But a sermon is a strange thing when you think about it. If I told you that a group of your friends... We're meeting each week to listen to some 37-year-old kid, to some of you, but I'm basically a four-year-old man, listen to someone talk about an ancient book that was a collection of writings from some 700 to 1,400 years ago by an unknown number of authors. And they were basing their lives around that library of books. You would be creeped out. You'd be like, what do you mean you gather each week to read Plato and then you guys all like talk about how we're going to base our lives on the philosophical teachings of this book? Why would anyone pay attention to what someone said thousands of years ago? Haven't we progressed since then? I mean, we barely think that people from three generations back have anything relevant to contribute to public discourse in today's world, let alone three millennia ago. I mean, isn't the Bible just this ancient, primitive book full of barbaric fairy tales that we have moved beyond, right? Haven't we? And so this morning, I want to spend some moments preaching on preaching, which is a preacher's dream, right? I want to talk to you this morning on preaching, or I want to preach on preaching what it is that we do in a sermon, why we do it, and how does it contribute to the life of our church? I titled my sermon, Life and the Word, and I wish you could see it because there's like two W's in the way that I spelled words, lowercase and uppercase, but that's just for me to know, I guess. But to ground us this morning, we're going to be reading out of Ezra chapter 7. If you have a Bible, you can open it up. If you have one in front of you, you're welcome to open that up. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 7. You could see if I've been reading my Bible because I'll be able to flip to it quickly. All right, here we go. 
Ezra chapter 7, it will be on the screen as well. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10 this morning, and it contains a whole lot of names that are super easy to pronounce. So, church, I invite you this morning here, the word of the Lord. After these things, during the rule of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra came up from Babylon. Ezra was the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, whew, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub. Ahitub? Ahitub? Somebody? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? The son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merailth, the son of Zerah. Why am I reading this text? I'm just kidding. The son of Zeruiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, amen, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the high priest. That's why we got there. Just, just wanted to throw that. I'm just kidding. This Ezra came to Jerusalem from Babylon. He was a teacher and knew well the teachings of Moses that had been given by the Lord, the God of Israel. Ezra received everything he asked for from the king because the Lord, his God, was helping him. In the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, more Israelites came to Jerusalem. Among them were priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of Artaxerxes' seventh year as king. Ezra had left Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. Because God was helping him. Ezra had worked hard, that's the key verse, to know and obey the teachings of the Lord and to teach his rules and commands to the Israelites. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we have come to this moment and into this place as an expression of our faith that you are a God who speaks a word. And we long, God, to be the people who hear your voice when you speak. We long to be the kinds of people who can receive a word from the Lord. And so by your grace and by your mercy, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. And we plead with you, speak, O oh God, for your people are listening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we've been in this series that we've been calling Rebuilding Church, in which we're examining what it looked like for God's people to reestablish themselves after nearly 70 years of exile in Babylon. We're leaning into this series in stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, excavating them for the insights and wisdom that we might glean as we consider what it means to sort of regroup as a church after a couple of tumultuous years in our world, in our lives, and in our society. What does it mean for us? What are the resources that we need to kind of move forward as a congregation? You see, Ezra and Nehemiah, they recall the stories of God's people returning from exile in Babylon. This event is often referred to as the second exodus, where God's people, uh, where God's people were freed from slavery and their captivity in Egypt in the book of Exodus, 
And they established themselves in the promised land to be a holy people set apart for God. So too the exiles here in Ezra and Nehemiah are freed from 70 years of captivity in Babylon. They'd been conquered by the Babylonian empire. And God has freed them from that captivity and called them to enter back, re-enter back into the promised land to establish themselves as his people, as his holy people. You see, prior to God's people kind of being in the promised land, but due to their unfaithfulness to God, they were conquered, right? And God says, I am going to be faithful to you, though you were unfaithful to me, and I'm going to reestablish you in the land. And so they've come back into Israel and into Jerusalem to rebuild the city and their communities and the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And that return from exile happens in three separate waves. The first wave is covered in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. And we have these two leaders. We have Zerubbabel and uh, one other priest, who I'm blanking on his name, I'm sorry, who lead that first wave of exiles out of Babylon and back into Jerusalem. And the primary task of this first group of folks that we've been thinking about and studying and reflecting on for the number of weeks here has been on reconstructing the temple. It takes them some 16, 17 years for them to rebuild the temple after returning to Jerusalem. And it's another 57 years, just imagine that, 57 years of just ordinary life before God does something else in this event that we call the second exodus. 57 years until the second wave of exiles step into the picture. 57 years between the end of Ezra 6 and the beginning of Ezra chapter 7. And that second wave of exiles are led by this man who the book is named after, Ezra. Finally, he arrives and emerges on the scene and and he has led a number of folks back into the promised land and he comes with a very specific task in mind. He comes to teach the people the word of God. He comes to make the scriptures central to the life of God's people. Again, Ezra comes, in other words, to preach Ezra comes to teach the teachings of the Lord. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why people will often refer to Ezra as a new Moses or a second Moses. Moses frees his people, God's people from Egypt, leads them to Sinai, and God gives them the law, gives them the scriptures through Moses to the people. So here, Ezra leads people from exile, and God gives him the task of equipping God's people with the teachings and word of God. You see, the teachings and the scriptures are central to the life of God's people as it is for us today. We read this all throughout the Psalms. The first Psalm, in fact, begins this way. It says, happy are those who don't listen to the wicked who don't go where sinners go, who don't do what evil people do, they love the Lord's teachings. And they think about those teachings day and night, like all of us do, right? Just meditating on the scriptures all of the time. It's all that you're thinking about, right? But those people who do that, the psalmist says, they are strong. Like a tree planted by a river, the tree produces fruit in season and its leaves don't die. Everything they do will succeed. 
Or consider Psalm 119, where the psalmist writes these words, Lord, teach me your demands, and I will keep them until the end. Help me understand so I can keep your teachings, obeying them with all of my heart. Lead me in the path of your commands because that makes me happy. You see, the scriptures are fundamental to the people of God and yearning and longing for it. And Ezra comes so that the people might cultivate this kind of heart as it pertains to God's word and the law of the Lord. But Ezra's hope is not merely the transmission of information to the people of God. It is the transformation into holiness that he comes to bear the word of God. See, the prophet Jeremiah, who is speaking and teaching to Israel as they are in exile, during those 70 years when they are in captivity in Babylon, he envisions a future, a hopeful future that looks very different from the captivity they were experiencing in that time. And in Jeremiah 31, he writes these words. He says, this is the agreement I will make with the people of Israel at that time, says the Lord. I will put my teachings in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. What Jeremiah prophesies is that God is going to be a God who writes the teachings of the Lord into the hearts of people, that they would be a holy people, that they would be uh, his people, and that he would be their God. But the question remains, right? We all know this. The Bible's important. I could have summarized. I could have just like fast forward that part of my sermon. It's like, the Bible's important. And everybody would have been like, yeah, amen. We all know that. That's why we're here, sort of. Why do you take all the time to explain that? The question is, why are the scriptures so important to us? How does the word of God accomplish this kind of transformation in the lives and hearts of people? You see, we come here every Sunday morning, not just to acquire and accrue more information about the word of God. You see, the scriptures are more than just a source of information. They are a power. They have a creative act that they impose upon the world. They create a new kind of heart for people within God's people. They make us new creation. They make something new. The word of God has power to create. Amen? Words have the power to create a new reality. I'm going to tell you a story that I haven't really shared publicly, but I'll share it with you. And apparently, it'll be online indefinitely. When I graduated from college, I was a youth ministry and psychology major. And I felt and had this sense of calling into parish ministry, local church ministry. And looming in the back of my mind all along throughout college was like, I don't think I should do that. I don't know if I have the qualifications to do that. It's a lot of self-doubt. There's a lot of questioning one's worthiness to be a pastor. And so I graduated from college and I was ready to go to seminary. It was like God had done a couple of different things in my life. I'll tell you about a different time where I was just like, this is very clear. But even though it felt so clear, I was still uncertain about what to do. And there was this semester between I graduated college and when I was going to start seminary where 
I was working at my home church doing youth ministry, and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. But all along, I'm just like, I don't know if I should do this. Maybe I should go do something else. And so there was this one night where I was with a bunch of friends. They had invited me over to their house, and we went to get some frozen yogurt at Yogurtland over by Cal State Long Beach, if you're familiar with that area at all. And uh, this was when frozen yogurt was a thing. I don't think it's really a thing anymore. We do Mr. Softy now because we're just honest about we're not really healthy people. So we go to Yogurtland, and as we're exiting out with a bunch of friends, there's this homeless guy who comes in a wheelchair, and he's um, sort of like just talking to us. He's a little inebriated, and, but he obviously is homeless, and he needs some food is kind of what he said. So a bunch of my friends left, and we're like, there's three of us who said, all right, we're going to take care of kind of your, what you need, right? We're going to go to the grocery store. And so we start walking across the parking lot. And as we're walking across the parking lot, there's this other homeless guy. I assume he's homeless. His name was Rashawn. And he pulls me aside and he says, hey, do you have a lighter? Because I have a cigarette, but I need a lighter. And I said, ah, I don't have a lighter, but if I had one, I'd let you use it. And this strikes up this conversation with me and Rashawn, and we're standing in this parking lot, and there, my other two friends had taken this other homeless guy, and they're going to the grocery store to get him some food. And I start talking to Rashawn, and I say to him, I said, like, where, you know, are you from around here? Are you from Long Beach? And he says, nah, I'm not from Long Beach. And I was like, oh, okay. And he says, but there is one thing that I carry around with me wherever I go. Wisdom. And I was like, drop some on me. Give me some wisdom. I need it desperately. So Rashawn starts going into this whole thing. He says, you have been created uniquely just as you. The world will tell you that you're like all sorts of other people, but you are just you. And I'm thinking in the back of my head like, ooh, so wise, Rashawn. And he goes, no, really, you have been created as you. And then he told me, he said, you had recently had like a really intense conflict with a family member. And this was, we could talk about my brother another time. My brother and I had just had this explosive just. And he said, you need to go and apologize to them, even though you don't think you did anything wrong. And I said, this is weird just chilling in this parking lot with this guy. And then he goes, he says two things. He says, and you have been called to teach and you need to teach. And you've been called to lead and you need to lead. And that's why I'm here. That is, these words that this random guy said, to me in a parking lot, created something in me that we call a pastor in this one moment. And I've never, ever forgotten it. Part of what he said that too, just so you know, he says like, do you think it's an accident that you were here tonight, that your friends took that other guy over there and it's just you and me hanging out here? This is the Holy Spirit who's talking to you. And I'm like tripping out. I'm like, I'm not a woo-woo-y mystical person. Like even tell you that story, I'm like, I think I sort of believe that that happened, but I'm not quite sure, right? But these words that were spoken into my life, they created something in me. 
they have sustained me, and they're the thing that I lean into whenever I have self-doubt. That is the power of words. Words spoken create something new sometimes in people. We know this every time that somebody gets married, right? There's these two words, I do. Saying those words create this thing that we call a marriage. There was no marriage. You spoke those words, and now there is a marriage. Is that words have the power to create something that did not exist previously. There are those moments when someone says exactly what you needed to hear, no? You know that there's more. You know that, that, that what you've been taught wasn't the last word on something, and you have this sense that you were missing something, and then you hear someone say it. They name it, they call it out, they describe it, they insist it is possible, they give it language. And whatever it is that they say, it makes your heart leap. You're like, ah, that's what I needed to hear. Those were the words that I needed spoken into existence. Or maybe you were in a bad place, filled with despair and doubt, wondering if there was any way forward. And someone said something that changed everything for you. It inspired you, it moved you, it spurred you to action, gave you a little bit of hope that there was a way forward. Words can do that. Words create new worlds. Words can change everything. And when this creative act of speaking happens upon the world by the God of creation, the power it has to create is unrivaled. Out of nothingness, God speaks into existence creation. Out of a burning bush, God calls Moses to free his people. Back from the dead, Jesus awakes Jairus' daughter. Out of a grave, Jesus calls Lazarus. It is the call of Jesus, the word of our Lord, from which the disciples were called to be a new kind of people, to be a Christian people. And the same word that created creation... The same word that raised the dead back to life is the word that called you. Come, follow me. And what God is doing through that word is creating a new kind of creation in you, a new kind of person in you. He's creating in our church a new way of being in the world. But it's not just the spoken word that creates. It is the received word that creates. Several weeks ago, we talked about Pentecost Sunday, which is one of my favorite Sundays. And I always thought Pentecost is that, that Sunday where Jesus ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples, and Peter decides because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, I got a, I got a word for you. I'm going to preach some gospel. I got good news for the world. So Peter gets up and he's doing his soapbox preaching thing. And people are kind of caught off guard, like this is a weird thing to be happening right now. And there's people from all around the region of Israel who gathered in that place. And the, the thing that happens is this, while Peter, Peter is preaching, all these people who speak all different kinds of languages, they all hear what it is that Peter is preaching. Now, when I read that story growing up, I thought the miracle was Peter's proclamation of the good news. That there was something that Peter said that somehow transmitted into all of these different languages of the people. But the older I get, the more I'm convinced that the miracle is not in Peter's preaching. 
It is in the people's capacity to hear. See, this is why every single week as we preach and as I preach, I know there's a lot of pastors and I don't want to like poo-poo on this. They're like, Lord, make me your instrument this morning. And sure, absolutely, I want to pray that kind of prayer. But the prayer that I will often pray on Sunday morning, I'm glad that Elaine prayed it this morning as well, is for us to have the ears to hear the voice of God. That we would be the kinds of people who are attuned so much that when God speaks a new word into our lives, that we would hear it and respond. Because when we hear the word of the Lord, when we familiarize ourselves with God's voice, then the creative powers begin to shape us into a new kind of people. When we hear beyond just wanting information, but are actually receptive to the new thing that God is doing in us, we become something new. We become holy people. We become transformed people. You see, we listen attentively because we long for God to impress his word upon our hearts. We listen longingly to the scriptures and to the word of God because we long for God to create something new in us. We want to be the church. We don't just want to know about it. I am not interested in that. We want to be the body of Christ. Catch this, ready? That the word would be made flesh in us as it was with Christ Jesus. This is the goal of preaching. That the word would be made flesh in you as it was in Christ Jesus. Jesus. I don't have a lot of time because I said I'm going to preach shorter sermons, but here we go, just really quickly. Thank you. Liddell's like, I got another hour. Let's go. Amen, Liddell. See, the thing about Jesus and the incarnation and why it's so meaningful is that there's this moment in time where the word of God actually breaks into the world in flesh and blood in Jesus Christ, where we see like if somebody actually attuned themselves and obeyed all of the teachings of the Lord, what would it look like? What would it look like? Come on, Sunday school answer. What would it look like? Jesus. And Jesus is like the most compelling figure to me in history. What is, what is it that we see Jesus doing all in his life and teachings and ministry? Caring for the poor. Talking about living ethical lives of integrity, moral lives. Reaching out to those who are on the margins, being really upset at religious people. That's like my favorite thing to do, being upset at religious people. But we see in the flesh what it would actually look like if the word of God was impressed on the heart of a human person. And guess what? When God called you, come, follow me, it was a call to be like Jesus. We get so caught up into wanting here to hear God speak about things that are important to us, right? God, would you just tell me about the job that I'm supposed to be having? God, would you just tell me about, you know, where I should live? God, would you just impress it upon my wife's heart that we should have another kid? Amen? Amen. No, we're not going to do that. Oh, no, no. We're not trying to start trouble in the clues of the household. I see that playing out on Huntington with some of my friends. We don't play that game, Paige. 
Paige is the boss of that conversation, right? But we pray and long for God to speak about so many things that we think are important. But you see, God has spoken. God has spoken definitively in what it is that he's calling you to do, and it looks like Jesus, and it looks like discipleship. God longs that each one of you, and this is possible, by the way, would look like and embody the character and person of Jesus Christ in your life. There is nothing about your life that keeps you from being able to embody the character of Jesus. There is nothing about our congregation. There's nothing about your life, no incident, no like bad thing that you did, no social location that you're in, no socioeconomic class where you're at that prevents you from living the life of Jesus. From living that life. Word from being the Word made flesh. This is the call of discipleship. My longing as a pastor, my longing is not that we would that I would be a better preacher of the gospel. Although I do want that. I do want that, right? My longing is that in this church and in this place. We would be the kinds of people who embodied the word of the gospel, who actually lived out the gospel with our lives. I heard one scholar write it this way, that we would be living gospels, that our lives would bear witness so closely to the character and person of Jesus Christ. People would be like, y'all be weird because you're Christians, right? Because you just walk around being Christ to the world. Church, is this the deep longing of our hearts? That we would actually have the word made flesh in us. Imagine a church like that. Imagine a people like that. Who are not just content with hearing great sermons about the scriptures and the word of God, but had that impressed so deeply on their lives that they were a living, breathing testimony of the love of God in the world. Let's be that kind of church. Amen? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.